Welcome to the Tamarin Learning Podcast, where host Dr. Kirby Ross-Plock speaks with experts on many topics relevant in the ultra-high net worth family wealth management space. Kirby is author of several books, including The Complete Family Office Handbook, and shares her expertise consulting with families and family offices. Kirby is also the founder of Tamarind Learning, an online wealth education platform that develops practical, foundational learning programs for beneficiaries to help them prepare for responsible stewardship of wealth. Podcast. I'm welcoming back two leading attorneys from Withers Worldwide, Ivan Sachs and Bill Cambus. Both were co-authors of Chapter 5 on Family Office Setup and Structure of the Complete Family Office Handbook, 2nd Edition. Today, we're going to talk about who should pay for and operate a family office, and who should own the family office and in what kind of structure. Welcome to the Tamron Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Kirby Rossbach, and I'm pleased to have Ivan Sachs and Bill Canvas with me today from Withers Worldwide. They are leading attorneys and co-authors of Chapter 5 of the Complete Family Office Handbook that focused on family office setup, structure, and operations. We're thrilled to have you both here today. Thanks so much. Thank you, Kirby. Good to be here. So, so we're really excited to dig into the topic today of how do you pay for structure and own a family office? And you know, paying for an office is one of those um, you know, situations that you have to think long and hard about what are you creating, how are you going to fund it, um, not just for today and tomorrow, but for decades to come. And I'd love to dig in just stepping into the the pool of family office right now to talk about how do families typically set up and think about how to pay for the family office structure. Bill? Sure. Thank you, Kirby. And that's a very timely question as we have volatility in the market um, internationally and, you know, families who who, uh, nothing new to be are thinking about succession planning and, um, you know, the safeguarding and good stewardship of of their assets. So a family office is not an essential part, but it often plays a very important role in that family enterprise. So the first way, and you divide it up really nicely, intentionally or unintentionally, which is to divide up setting it up and paying for it separately. Because I think you really have to take it in stride. The, question, the first question is, is this appropriate? What is the most appropriate arrangement for a family? And from there, we end up, we can evaluate different opportunities for cash flow that would lead to the sustainability of the office within the overall enterprise. Um, ideally, you do it in a way that is the least economically disruptive to the overall enterprise. And ideally, even furthermore, um, in a way that is uh, a net benefit to the overall enterprise. Um, there are certain activities that need to be undertaken, and many of those activities require um, the participation of individuals who will get paid for that. Um, there are lots of different ways of dividing that up, and that's ultimately how we work back into and work around the payment and funding uh, aspect of, of, of running a family office. So often, it, when starting with that, is this the right thing for a family, there's a driver. There is somebody or some constituent group of people 
in the family enterprise who will be encouraging the exploration of the family office. Um, those are usually the folks who want to make the initial investment. Um, many times it may be a, first, a, a senior generation who is recognizing all the work that they have been doing and say, we need to professionalize this. But it may also be a group of fiduciaries, trustees who say that they themselves as individuals or a private trust company is not best equipped to handle a certain set of tasks and they want a family office to actually be doing that. Um, it may be beneficiaries of trusts um, who want this service because of organizing um, just the various demands of being good stewards. I mean, there's, a, there's a, quite a long list which we won't go through right now. Um, but whichever group it is or whichever individuals uh, they are that, that want to have that discussion will often be the ones who invest in the time as well as the economic cost of setting up that family office. And from there, we then move to what sort of strategies may allow it to be self-sustaining. So Ivan, I'm just really curious, is paying for and being the owner of the same thing necessarily? No, uh, it's often separated actually, so that you have, a, in many cases, you'll have a senior generation uh, or you know the promoters uh, generation, as as Bill was describing there, who become the owners of the enterprise. Uh, but that's certainly not necessarily how it's funded. You know, family uh, offices are structured like a business, and sometimes they also want to really be justified as a business. And so how they bill their customers for services, as it were, whether that's, you know, entirely family members and trust. Obviously, we should set, we should set apart right now if they're um, becoming multifamily offices or taking in third party money and looking to actually, you know, turn a profit or cover the costs of the founding family by uh, fees, you know, to other families. So that's a, that gets you into, you know, its own logic. But speak, sing, sticking with single family offices at the moment, often that promoting generation will be the owners and they want governance control. They want to know whether they're, who they're inviting into the control of that entity as the next generation is maturing and that sort of thing. So, uh, so they'll want to own it, but they may have ideas about family equity and paying for what you, uh, what you incur that leads to wanting uh, children and uh, next gens to, to understand that if they're gonna take all of the admin assistance time with their personal business interests and stuff, then they should get a bill for that. So, um, you know, oftentimes it starts out with that first generation subsidizing costs, but over time developing a model where you pay for the time of the employees that you use and that kind of stuff. And, um, in many cases, what we see sophisticated family offices coming up with over time, especially when they get into further generations, is a, a mixed model uh, on that, uh, where you now have enough assets under management and multiple uh, participants in obtaining services that you're charging an AUM type of a fee to cover the cost of the office, which has potentially is important to present-day tax efficiencies. And on the other hand, when it comes to, shall we say, walking the dog or, you know, the, the concierge services, that that's where you want to make people pay for their play so that, you know, your staffing needs and stuff have something to discipline them 
which is that you know people know to the extent they're going to take people's time, they're going to have some some cost impact for that. Uh, so it, it 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 often becomes a mix. And Bill, when you see the senior generation start to fade and maybe pass away, you see the next generation beneficial owners are in adulthood now. Talk to me a little bit about the transfer. What happens at an ownership level? And when we think about how we pay for this office structure, I would imagine this is a critical tension period, right? If you have uh, family members who are beneficial owners who really didn't, I, I didn't intend to set this up. I, now I have to pay for this. Um, tell us what you've seen and, and what's the experience of families who do it well? Certainly. Uh... As family sophistication grows and as family uh, membership expands, um, I find a, a contrasting, um, a, a contraction of the ownership. Rather, it's only those that are engaged um, or even a structure that allows for voting rights, but not ownership of the family office itself. So it really ends up becoming a consolidation uh, um, of, of responsibilities. Um, and I, I also very much like the idea of, and, and we'll explore non-stock corporate ownership, um, purpose trust ownership, or now we have foundations in two states in particular, uh, uh, Wyoming and New Hampshire. So those offer some interesting cutting edge opportunities to have types of entities that may or may not have owners. Um, and, and I like that because what it does is it forces the funding require the funding requirement or responsibility to come from those using the services, much like Ivan described. Um, an, an alternative to that, um, or another variation on it, because Ivan's right, ultimately it's complex and it suits the needs of those who are using the services, um, but it almost becomes like a club. One might, the family members that benefit from this and trusts and trustees that, that require those services may have an annual, a nominal annual fee to ensure that there's a certain amount of running capital for basic uses. And then after that, it goes on. It, similarly, it comes up in, in property management contexts where families acquire a fair amount of, of luxury properties, um, whether they're real estate in one jurisdiction or another, um, or boats and planes, things that have high running costs. A lot of times the family office is tasked with that, but not everybody's using it to the same degree. What we do want to watch out for, though, is that the family office doesn't operate in such a consolidated manner so as to simply be um, seen as managing one's own investments. In other words, the ownership of the family office tied closely to those who are using it and benefiting in the investment uh, management context. Um, that comes with it some real risks from a tax perspective. Um, and we also need to be careful of the responsibilities um, when there are fiduciary duties that come up. Uh, we have um, some IRS guidance and um, concerns over retained control, possession, and enjoyment. Um, and so we want to be careful that those owning the family office and providing services don't encroach upon a fiduciary uh, responsibility that then suggests that those who believe they had actually transferred assets did in fact retain control. So these are the different considerations that go into that. Who owns the family office? How does it succeed to the next generation? And then how is that complemented by funding? Excellent. Now, just in closing, Ivan, any last thoughts about best practices when paying for 
um, an office structure and or ownership considerations? Well, I think, you know, whether uh, the initial founders of a family office pay for it and choose for state planning strategic reasons or otherwise are happy to, to pay for it, um, or you go to a model where everybody's paying for it, um, you know, as a big believer in the value that family offices add to families and to strengthen the, the uh, uh, passage, the retention of family wealth and the growth across the generations, I think um, it starts very much with education that the next generations are learning where that value add is and not suddenly shocked to find costs going on here and become, you know, petulant about them. That is a, you know, a, a not uh, unheard of dynamic, which you were alluding to, but, you know, they have to see the value uh, in uh, the concentration of their purchasing power, uh, their, you know, the, 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 the group insurance, the group benefits that they're getting, the uh, risk protection they're getting from having professionalized uh, management of the var varieties of risks to, to uh, wealth across generations. And it's always hard because it's not as easy to quantify that. Mm. Uh, you know, it's not easy to quantify what didn't happen to you when you got a divorce. You know, it's uh, what didn't happen to you when someone passed away in the family and there was no taxes, right? So, uh, so I think the uh, the founding generation and the family professionals certainly owe an important, uh, uh, you know, element to educating um, family members as offices like that grow, so that when they do see the costs, they understand what they're what they're getting for it. Yeah, absolutely. Bill, any last closing thoughts? Part of that value, Ivan was right to point out that there's a series of values that this can provide. And, and I think that understanding that is, is so important. It's a risk management tool in, in many families. It's, a, it's an entity that can serve in other roles, such as a manager, general partner of underlying asset owning entities, which does ultimately help insulate individuals. Um, it also provides for income streams that are not otherwise available and can be very advantageous to a family. So in addition to the group benefits, the economies of scale um, that a family member gets, there's that risk management side of it too. Yeah, and and continuity of, of family history. So uh, all of this um, makes it a, a viable and important sort of option for the, the sophisticated or the organized family. Excellent. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for being here today at the Tamron Learning Podcast. Your host, Kirby Rossbach. I'm here with Ivan Sachs and with Bill Cambus from Withers Worldwide. They are co-authors of Chapter 5 on Setup and Structure and Operating Family Office. We're delighted to have you both here today. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your wisdom. Thank you.